Good morning, church. So great to see you this morning as we um, join together in God's Word. I'm not Pastor Kevin, uh, as Drew brought up. Uh, I am Rob, the new youth pastor here, and we're just so uh, thankful that we've been given the opportunity to preach this morning. And usually, uh, youth pastors don't get to preach unless it's like July 4th weekend, and uh, that's a reality. And so um, I am just thankful that, that Kevin... Um, has asked me to do this, and we're thankful that you as a church allow the staff, allow our pastor to have, we call them dog days, days alone with God, and so thankful for a church that allows our pastor to have time to commune with God, to really lean into him heavily, to know where do we go in terms of with our messages and our sermons and such, and so just a great blessing um, for that, and so thank you church family for allowing our pastor to do that. But this morning, we're gonna have um, a little bit of fun as we also um, just lean heavily into God and the truth of his word. And I believe this is something that will be very practical because it needs to be practical as we approach a new school year, as we come out of what we have been through over the last year and a half or so. And so please, this morning, this is a little bit out of my sermon style in terms of I, I prefer to preach expositionally, where we go verse by verse through a passage of scripture. This is a little different in terms of, we're going to have kind of four core passages, one in Jeremiah and then three from the Gospels, and I want to paint a picture of Jesus for you this morning that will help us uh, with our subject matter as it is this morning. And so with that said, I hope that you will not hear this as a self-help message. This is not a self-help message. This is not a God-help message. God does not need my help. I am blessed that God allows us to be used for kingdom work. But this is um, a truth of the gospel. And as we get there, um, again, Drew mentioned NASCAR. Any NASCAR fans with a show of hands? Okay. Six of you? Okay. (laughs) Fabulous. So we're up to eight. We're up to eight. You know what? I've got to be honest with you this morning. If, If you're unfamiliar with NASCAR, it's a bunch of guys and one girl. Um, actually, I had to do some research. 121 women over the years have qualified for and raced in a NASCAR race, so I didn't know that. But uh, a bunch of guys and, and some ladies as well that race around a circular track, crazy high speeds, and that circular track looks something like this. That is actually Texas Motor Speedway. And so just imagine the cars going around. And I have to be... I'm honest with you this morning in our student ministry, we talk about how important transparency is for us and for the church. And so I want to be honest with you. I'm not much of a NASCAR fan. Um, I don't get it. And and so um, I love cars and trucks, but I just, I really don't get it as a fan. And so I've actually had people invite me to go to NASCAR races with them. Uh, The last invite was actually a friend that had access to a luxury box. and, And I had to politely decline because I would rather go sit on I-35 and play Candy Crush than go into uh, a NASCAR race. That's just me. That's just me. Um, And so the same friend with the wonderful luxury box went on to explain how much fun it is to go to a NASCAR weekend and take part in that. And I'm sure that's true, uh, but I've always heard the acrostic about NASCAR that it is um, a non-athletic sport centered around a racetrack. And so that's what was in my brain and in my heart. And so um, I'm not a fan, but... Yet, as we get going this morning, I think it's important that we see, uh, I use the NASCAR theme this morning because I believe it's a perfect metaphor for where we are in our culture today. And I believe um, our culture fuels this mindset that we're going to talk about this morning 
and we're not slowing down. And so immediately where I want to go is to the pages of Jeremiah. One of my favorite verses um, that, that we use all the time, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. And so if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Jeremiah chapter 6, I'll come back to this toward the end of the message as well. But a beautiful verse. And as we read this, I want you to be mindful of how many verbs are in here, what those verbs are. This is a very active exploratory verse. It is calling us into something here. And this is um, basically Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, is bringing this word to his people in Judah. And you look at the top of chapter 6 there, impending disaster for Jerusalem. He's trying to warn them as they're on this continual cycle of following God and diverting, following God and diverting. And here we are again, and he has a word for them, as we see in verse 16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it and find what? Rest for your souls. Find rest for your souls. The New Living Translation, instead of ancient paths, it uses the word crossroads. Crossroads. Church, I believe that we as a church, we as a culture, as a country, are at a crossroads. A crossroads moment this morning. And also, as you're looking at the the New Living Testament, Um, ancient paths it uses old godly way and so look at the verbs in there stand at the crossroads or stand by the roads and look stand and look and ask for the ancient paths the old godly way ask where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls and so this morning here's where we're going we're talking about busyness not business busyness the crazy chaotic pace of life and here's kind of the clincher as we begin a new school year and as we um, talk about this idea of the chaotic pace of life so much of that has been deconstructed over the last year and a half in terms of the shutdowns and working from home and life has just looked so drastically different and so maybe if we can think of it in this way this morning as we um, look into the Gospels this morning, as we paint this picture of Jesus and some of the rhythms of his life, if we could think about as maybe we are hopefully long-term getting more back into a flow of normalcy, not that we'll ever be normal again, but normalcy in a sense that as we start to reconstruct maybe our schedules, maybe you've been at a time where, man, I tell you what, we've had some great time at home. I've had some great, um, you know, time with my family and things like that. But as we fall into um, new school year and some new norms, going back to work, hopefully, uh, and things like that, that we will build our schedule according to what God's word would have for us and not to what culture would dictate for us. In other words, the rat race. John Hopkins, in a health review, the writer Elizabeth Dickinson, she wrote an article entitled The Cult of busy the cult of busy I'm not gonna throw a lot of statistics at you this morning because we can all pretty much rest in the fact that the pace of life is pretty chaotic most of the time and so in this um, I just want to read the opening line of of this article the cult of busy and it says that there's a global epidemic of overscheduling and it's ruining our health it's ruining our health obviously a secular review there a secular article but but we can we can also see that and 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 agree with that okay stress busyness all of these things anxiety it can ruin our health and the thing about this this was written in 2016 
in 2016 before COVID, before the lockdowns, before the stress, and before the divided country that we've seen over the last um, year and a half or more. And so as we look at that, I want to put, um, again, biblical lenses on to see where we can go with this. As we begin a new school year, as we go back into this re-entry, I think it's important for us that we see culturally, it's easy to fall into this idea of the busy life. We live fast, and don't we seem to view people who live fast in a way of prestige? Oftentimes, I, I had a conversation on a back porch in Abilene with some wonderful friends, Terry and Paul Meyer, yesterday, and, and she knew that I was preaching today, and she just tossed out, hey, what are you, what are you talking about? What are you, what are you bringing tomorrow in the Word? And I just told her the idea of busyness, and then she just started tossing some things out there, almost like she had read my notes. Like, oh, yeah, it's so crazy, and the pace of life, and it's not healthy, and, you know, just so much of that. I was like, you're reading my mail, because that's exactly what we're talking about. But how do we even greet each other? Hey, how's it going? Are you keeping busy? Well, we respond. How's it going? Oh, staying busy. Again, with a badge of honor given to us if we're busy people. But the truth is, this new normal, when you talk to people, when you really listen to people in that conversation, there's a level of pain that you can hear in those conversations that seems common. And it's usually connected to the pace of life that we choose. And there you've got some, some space in your notes, some blanks in your notes. Would you just write down the word choose? Choose, because I believe that busyness is a choice. I believe that busyness is a choice. And that's a key word. And you're okay to disagree with that. But I believe it's a choice. And a key relational issue that you can hear in your conversations if you'll stop and, and listen is that we keep talking about the same thing, and, and a lot of it deals with this idea of time, of time, and here's kind of the common bond for us. We all have the same amount of time, 1,440 minutes in each day. And so with the choices that we make in terms of how we're going to set up our schedule, how we're going to do life is so important because if we get carried away and fall into culture's trap and fall into the enemy's trap, because I do believe the enemy uses time against us oftentimes as a weapon and so as we do that what we see is so many people verbalize the idea that they don't have enough time for friendships for solid friendships they don't have enough time for their kids they don't have enough time for their marriages and worst of all they don't allow enough time to grow in their relationship with jesus and so if we're being honest this morning again and an air of transparency this morning, if we're brave enough to just lift our hand and say that the way maybe that we're living our lives right now or at least um, in the recent past as we're coming out of the pandemic and the lockdown, if we feel like it could be described as maybe just a little bit too busy, I'm going to raise my hand, okay? Anybody fall into that trap, okay? Busyness, busyness is around us. Um, if you're not raising your hand, thanks for visiting from Iowa. It's great to have you today, okay? But, yeah, busyness can, can be that trap that we can fall into so easily. And so the impact of busyness can be seen in so many ways. And just a couple of more setup items here, and we're going to jump into the Gospels. How do we know if we're too busy? I want to give you three very practical um, scenarios. And you don't have to raise your hand. We'll make this rhetorical, okay? But three scenarios. Scenario number one, how many of you maybe had a spat with your spouse on the way to church this morning? I'll answer. 
not a spat, but um, it was a little tense because there's another level of intensity when you preach God's word on a Sunday morning as a youth pastor. And so I was a little tense. It's like, okay, get out of the house. Let's get out of the house. Let's go. Um, I'll take the dogs out again. It was a little stressful. Okay, we got to go worship Jesus. All right, and it, a little stressful there. Okay, I'll raise my hand on that. The pace of life is not what I would desire, especially on a Sunday morning. Scenario number two, you're not the first person in line at a stoplight. You're behind the first person, right? And what happens when the light turns green? Go. And if they don't go, there's a level of anxiousness. Like if they're not in motion, the nanosecond the light turns green, there's a level of anxiety or you, a slight honk, polite honk, right? Okay, we call that gronk. You're, you're acting as a gronk. Green light plus honk, you're a gronk, okay? And, and so that might indicate that your life is too busy if you're stressed even at a stoplight. And the third scenario is this, and this one gets me every time. Really, all three of them get me. Um, you're so time conscious when you go grocery shopping that you stress over which line to choose to check out with your groceries. So much so, and this is reality, so much so that you begin to do math in your head as you're trying to decide which line to pick and you create these logarithms where you take the number of items in your basket and you multiply it by the number of people in the line that you want to choose and you divide it by the age of the checker. Okay, you ever do that? And, and then you select your line. And it's not calm. When you choose that line, you're not calm. It's a competition for you. It's a competition for me. What do you do? You're checking the other lines, right? To see if I'd have chosen one of those lines, where am I going to be? I'd already be through. And it's this competition. You're going to high five or fist bump the checker and the bagger and taunt the other grocers on your way out. You know, a sign that you might be too busy. And busyness can be displayed in other less humorous ways because busy people often experience a certain level of pain that we mentioned. And here is the implication of that. It dries up our love. Busyness can dry up our love where we have a lack of personal depth, which leads to very superficial relationships which result in wounded hearts. It can dry up our love, it can increase our stress, it can decrease our joy, even as believers, it can make us less productive, it can keep us from hearing from God. It can keep us from hearing from God where we don't have time for what our hearts really long for, for the relationships that we desire to build and for the people that we want to be. And so this morning, how do we know if we're too busy? Again, a checklist for you, no matter what you're doing, you have a vague sense that you ought to be doing something else. The second item, no matter how hard you work, you always feel like you're behind. Or thirdly, you feel like you're spinning your wheels when you get to the end of the week, and in spite of all of the activity that you've done, you find yourself asking, have I really accomplished anything? And so, how did we get here? That's the punch in the gut question. There's a Compass Health article entitled, How Busyness Affects Your Brain and Health, and it says, since an overly busy life is so often linked to stress, the result of not having enough downtime could possibly release the hormonal chemical cortisol that temporarily shuts down our digestive and immune systems, proven over and over again to be lethal. Chronic stress is said to cause heart disease, cancer, and even death. And so this is something we need to deal with. This is something that we need to address in a biblical fashion as we enter a new school year, as we again begin to put together what our schedule's gonna look like, as we choose the things that we will allow into that schedule and into our world. And so for us, we got here maybe from a, an erosion of boundaries, especially during 
the last year and a half in the shutdown. If you're working from home, we've lost the physical boundary between work and home. And there's a statement that's been crafted that says, work is recreation is home. Work is recreation is home. We've lost our boundaries. There's been an erosion of the boundaries and an explosion of choices. An explosion of choices. As a teenager, as a kid, you know what? We had the three networks and then we got cable with like, what, 21 stations and that was big time. Now we have Netflix, we have Disney Plus, we have ESPN Plus, we have Amazon Prime. Choices beyond our imagination. As a kid, if we wanted to buy something, needed to shop, we'd go to the mall. Okay, now you, you find a device and you have Amazon deliver whatever you need in the next day or two to your door. And so those things have all played into this. And so I ask you this morning, in the craziness of the NASCAR life, as we try to chase peace as a believer in Christ, to try and find God's peace, just like we talked about in Jeremiah, okay, rest for our souls, the peace of Christ which surpasses our understanding. How do we do that at a NASCAR pace? I'm glad you asked. It's important that we ask, where is Jesus in this? Is Jesus in the car? Is he encouraging us to step on the accelerator and go faster? Is he on the pit crew? Is Jesus on the pit crew, pit crew helping throw some new tires on the vehicle to keep us back in that race? Is he in the tower trying to encourage us something up ahead? You're going to want to watch that, watch that turn. Okay? Is he in the stands cheering us on? Go faster, go faster, get more, done. Or could it be this morning that Jesus is outside of the race wooing us away, wooing us to join him, to get out of the rat race? to walk with him. And here's a key statement. Are we God's people choosing a NASCAR lifestyle while at the same time trying to follow a savior that walks? Are we filling our schedules and losing key time where we could be spending that with God and fellowship with him and he's wooing us there? Because we have a savior that wants us to walk with him, not ahead of him. And I believe that Jesus would have a message for us today that would include a couple of promises. John 10, 10. Because we know that the enemy is real. We know that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, right? But then the back part of that, that beautiful verse, life verse for me, is what? Jesus came that we may have life. And not just life, but life abundant. Life overflowing. A life filled with, with Jesus. And so that's one promise that he would say. And he would tell us, you know what? His presence his presence is meant to encourage us. His presence is meant to empower us as believers in Christ. Again, a life that is abundant. He did not say, I came that you might have a faster life. I came that you might do more. But yet, don't we so often, or people in general so often feel like, that's what God wants me to do. He wants me to accomplish more. He wants me to do more for him when he's just saying, you know what, come out of the race. Rest in me. And the second promise would be that this, Promise number two, in Matthew, if you've got your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 11. There in verse 11, again, words in red, the words of Christ, I believe that this abundant life is connected to what he offers us in that relationship with rest, with peace. Look at verse 28 of Matthew 11, and it says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then he goes on, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And maybe this verse loses you because a yoke, okay, why is he talking about eggs? No, okay, a yoke that he's talking about is wooden or wooden and leather, and it is um, a, a wooden frame that is placed upon the shoulders of work animals, a couple of oxen, a couple of oxen. It's a wooden yoke, and the yoke basically allowed you to harness your animals together so that they could work in partnership, so that they could work together, so that they could share the burden of the job. And so is Jesus calling us by name? Is he saying, Rob, be yoked to me? Be yoked to me. Not some fuel-injected vehicle, but be yoked to me. Walk with me and learn the rhythms of my life. So what were the rhythms of Jesus' life? Go ahead and get ready to um, go to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and we want to look at the three ways that Jesus models a life that doesn't seem to fit in this rat race mode, this rat race scenario that we have in culture. So what were the rhythms in Jesus' life? J.B. Phillips was an English Bible scholar. He was a translator, author, clergyman, and he wrote in his book, Your God is Too Small, a beautiful paragraph that, that sets us up perfectly, and he says, as we're thinking about the rhythms of Jesus' life, he said, if there's one thing which should be quite plain to those who accept the revelation of God in nature and the Bible, it is that he, Jesus, was never in a hurry. Long preparation, careful planning, and slow growth would seem to be the leading characteristic of spiritual life. It's refreshing to study the poise and the quietness of Christ, his task and responsibility might well have driven a man out of his mind, but he was never in a hurry. He was never impressed by numbers. He was never a slave of the clock. He was acting, he said, as he observed God to act. Never in a hurry. And so in your notes there this morning, what did Jesus model? As we talk about the idea of busyness and how we want to avoid that as believers in Christ in order to what? Better our lives? Well, no, in order to plug into the kingdom in order to help build the kingdom with the opportunities that it gives us in order to uh, make much of God and glorify him through these ways and we'll see that with Christ and so the first thing is this Jesus called others to slow down if you'd write that in your notes there Jesus called others to slow down and we see a familiar passage this is the only gospel where we find this passage in Luke chapter 10 if you would go there for me and the back part of that verses 38 through 42 of Luke chapter 10 and we're talking about Martha and Mary. And we see Jesus communicate this relaxed truth to Martha. And so let's read that together this morning. Again, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. He's just finished the parable of the Good Samaritan. And now they went on their way, and Jesus entered a village. And we know from the scriptures that village is Bethany. Again, the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The village of Bethany. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. Don't you want to throw in a third Martha there just for emphasis? Martha, Martha, Martha. But he says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion, 
which will not be taken away from her. It will not be taken away from her. And so these are the good friends of Jesus. Mary, Martha, again, we'll see in a minute, Lazarus, dear friends of his. He's meeting them. He's into their home, and we see something going on here immediately. We, we see that Mary is at the feet of Jesus. And to be at the feet of Jesus in biblical times for a great um, teacher or rabbi, that's where you were because you wanted to absorb every word. And, and she's right there showing her devotion to Christ, wanting to get every word that the Lord has to give. Meanwhile, Martha is not doing something bad per se. She is being hospitable. She's readying the house. She's readying the food, and she is stressed over it. She is in a NASCAR pace right now in her life, and Jesus calls her out on it, right? And so she's not devoted, as we see Mary at the feet of Jesus. She's distracted, again, with some good things, trying to prep some food, get the house ready for our guest, for Jesus, for the Son of God. And so not something bad, but yet something that is called out by Jesus Christ. Martha, Martha. Look at what it says. Martha, Martha, you're anxious and you're troubled about many things. Could that describe us today? Are you anxious and troubled about many things? And Jesus goes on, but there's one thing that's necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion and it shall not be taken away from her. The good portion, an Old Testament phrasing that means close fellowship close fellowship with God. That's where Mary is. And so today, as we see Jesus calling Martha to slow down, again, she's not doing anything wrong. She's just prepping the house, getting ready. Martha, Martha, look at your sister. Your younger sister's found, in, found a good portion, found that close fellowship with me, absorbing what I have to say in kingdom stuff here. Would you not join her? Slow down from the rat race and sit at my feet. And so I wonder if we have turned following Jesus into a race. Into a race. when he, He's calling us to walk with him. And we're thinking we need to be more productive in order to please him. No. No, that is not truth. And you think, wasn't that one of the commandments? Thou shalt do more. And the answer is no. Hundreds of Old Testament laws all led to the truth of the greatest commandment, which is love God and love people, the second being like it. Jesus is calling us to slow down, to get out of the race of the NASCAR pace. And so for that, we see a rhythm in Jesus' life. And then the second thing is this. Jesus took his time. Jesus took his time. And so if you would, turn on over to John chapter 11. So from Luke chapter 10 to John chapter 11. And look at this event with Jesus and Lazarus. Again, Lazarus being one of his best friends at this point. And what we see is Jesus takes his time in, in this event, and, and you'll be familiar with this event, and I want to read the whole event for you again out of John chapter 11. We're talking about the death of Lazarus, and it says in verse 1, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Again, dear friends of Jesus now. Verse 2, It was Mary who anointed the Lord, the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Does that sound like a normal response? 
if I'm a medical person and I hear that, that a friend of mine, okay, is, is not doing well, is perhaps dying, I, I'm A to B. I'm going, all right? But Jesus doesn't do that, okay? We see that Jesus takes his time. He stays two days longer. Let's keep going. So we keep reading. Back to verse 7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And then the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of his world. And if anyone stumbles in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And then verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Okay, they're not quite getting it, but Jesus is using this language. And then verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And then um, we see, again, just beautiful verses. Let's skip ahead to verse 38. Then Jesus was deeply moved again. He came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus took his time. Again, he received, received word from his friends, from the sisters, that Lazarus is dying. Jesus, we need you. We need you to come and to heal him. And yet Jesus said, you know what? Let's, let's stay here a couple of days additionally. So they stayed a couple of extra days, and then they traveled. And this was another day of traveling. And so they're three days in. Well, Jesus knew what was going on. And Jesus' thoughts and understanding was obviously God-sized, and he knew what was going on. And he knew this was going to bring glory to his Father and to himself in this. And so he was using the language of Lazarus is just sleeping. Lazarus is, not, is sleeping. And you'll see. You'll see, disciples, you'll understand. It's all going to make sense. And so finally they journey and they get there. And indeed, Lazarus is dead. He's been dead for four days. And we understand the body is decomposing. The Jewish um, rituals, they would not embalm the body, but they would wrap linen loosely around the body. And the linen had been um, just covered in, in an ointment of spices and aromatic things. And so um, that's what's happening. He's been dead for four days, and they're afraid because the body's decomposed already. But Jesus said, I got you. Watch me. Lazarus, come forth. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus took his time because he had kingdom mindset behind it. For us, as we start um, trying to put back our lives in terms of scheduling and school and all the, all the new coming back into place, 
we have to be careful that we keep that kingdom mindset. And we understand that, that Jesus wants us to slow down for kingdom things. Jesus wants us to take our time for kingdom mindset. And the third thing is this, Jesus stopped to love others. Jesus stopped to love others. Let's go to the book of Mark. Again, we're all over the Gospels. And if you'll go to Mark, chapter 5, verse 32, is where we'll focus. Um, Jesus has just gotten off the boat. There in verse 21, and he has been ministering. He is just at the first part of the chapter, healed a man from a demon, and now... When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. That, that's just what's going on. There are crowds following Jesus Christ. And a great, great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, and he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And get this, a great crowd followed him again and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, uh, potentially a tumor, internal bleeding. And so, and she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she'd heard the reports about Jesus and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I'll be made well. Talk about faith. Verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And so here's the key as we're talking about um, a rhythm of Jesus' life. This is so important. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? He was not without knowledge of who touched him. He was not ignorant to that fact. He knew who touched him. I believe what he's doing here, he's calling whoever touched him out to give glory to God. A beautiful picture of that. And so his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Okay, remember what's going on. Okay, the synagogue official, his daughter is dying. He has implored Jesus as he's coming off the boat. Again, just circled with the crowds. Jesus, can you come heal my daughter? Will you come heal my daughter? Let's go. We're on our way. Have you ever put your, yourself in the, in the dad's shoes? As a father and thinking of a small number of medical crises in the lives of, of our kids, um, I'm not in a good place when Jesus stops and, and slows the process down. When Jesus says, wait, 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 someone touched me, I felt the power go out. And he turns and he stops and he wants to find out who it is. Can you imagine what the synagogue official, the father of the dying girl's doing? Um, I'm sorry? <laughs> You're asking a question, who touched you? Okay, can we, please Jesus, can we go? It's my daughter, she's dying. Who touched you? Um, okay, I touched you. Okay, I was walking by Matthew and I pushed him and he accidentally fell into you. It was Matthew and I pushed him. Okay. Can we go now? But yet Jesus stopped to love others. 
he stopped to love others, even though he was going to tend to a dying girl. And so as we pick it up right there, verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. There's that language again. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where their child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. If we're chasing peace at a NASCAR pace, I believe that we are missing it. If we do not see the rhythms of the life of Jesus that we see here in the Gospels, we see in those rhythms that Jesus called others to slow down. He called others to slow down. Mary's understood. Mary's devoted. Mary's sitting at my feet. And that good portion, that close um, encounter with me will not be taken from her. Martha, you're doing some good things, but, but let's focus on the key things, the best things. Being in my presence at my feet. Okay, and so he called others to slow down. Jesus took his time. Jesus took his time, even though his dear friend Lazarus was dying, and he knew he had already died. He'd been dead four days. Jesus waited two days, and then it took another third day to travel. Jesus knew that, and Jesus used that for kingdom work to point the glory to his heavenly Father, to himself, and Jesus stopped to love others. The woman was healed just by the indirect touching of his garment, and he felt the power go out, and he stopped, even though he was going to heal another little girl for a very important person, a synagogue um, official. He stopped to love others in the process, and he healed her. He drew her out to share. I, I, in fear and trembling, I touched your garment. I'm completely healed. I've been struggling with that for years, but Jesus was thinking in more of a kingdom mindset. And so for us, in closing today, again, in your notes there, I believe this is so practical for us living in 2021, coming out of a pandemic, coming out of the lockdown, moving into, again, some sense of normalcy, but then again, maybe not. We don't know what's happening, but God does. And I believe at a crossroads for the church right now, we can lean into God for kingdom work. We can lean into God to allow him to use us to bring glory to him. As we talk about our crazy pace, seeking peace, chasing peace at a NASCAR pace, here's what we'll make of it. How do we remove ourselves from the race, the rat race that is? Just say no. Very easy for me to say, just say no. But much of our NASCAR pace can be attributed to our inability to use that little two-letter word, no. Because every time that we say yes, we're saying no to something else. Okay, and if we're talking about what we say no to, it's very easy to say no to the bad things. Hey, Rob, let's go cliff diving this afternoon. No. Okay, that, that's easy. I'm talking about begging God every day to help us um, in, in our planning, to help us say no to some really good things in order to say yes to the best things. I want to repeat that. 
to get out of the NASCAR pace, to stop chasing that, but to chase Christ, to seek his peace and his rest, we're going to have to say no to some really good things in order to say yes to the best things. Why do we default to yes? It's very easy to do. I'm a yes man. I, I love to make people happy. I love to please people. But there are some things that I don't need to say yes to. Again, some good things. We need to learn to say no. Jesus learned to say no. Look at John chapter 7, verse 8. John chapter 7, verse 8. Jesus at the Feast of Booths. And what we see is uh, his brothers are trying to get him to go to an event, and he was very blunt with them. Look at verse 8. You go on up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast, for my time has not fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Jesus, again, didn't rush. Jesus, again, knew how to say no to his brothers in this case. I'm not going to that event. I've got some, some bigger things to do and to work on. That kingdom mindset again, showing through right there. So learn to say no. He needed time alone. He needed his solitude. Um, he learned to say no to constant activity. He learned to say no to other people's agendas. We could take his lead. We could take from his lead on that. Second thing is this. Not just say no, but also turn it off. Turn it off. One habit that contributes to a healthy soul is simplicity, is silence. It's a spiritual discipline, the spiritual discipline of silence. An essential ingredient for spiritual growth, but yet we're surrounded 24-7 by noise. Speaking for myself, um, I don't experience silence that often because I wake up to an alarm. I turn on music as I get ready, as I get in the truck. I turn on um, a podcast or a teaching or music, and I get to work and, and work. There's, there's interaction, there's commotion. I've got something going on musically. Most of the time I get home, I want to see the news, and, and maybe we'll watch a show together and, and then kind of wrap up some things and get ready for bed again. There's no time for silence in my normal schedule. It's so important that we understand how to turn it off because God often reveals himself to us in silence. Look at 1 Kings 19, 11 through 12. What we see here is Elijah, and Elijah has been used by God in some amazing ways in the Old Testament. Um, and then he gets scared, and he's kind of at a point of running for his life, and there's some depression there, some people would say, and we see God taking care of him. But this is a beautiful interaction in 1 Kings 19, verses 11 through 12. And God said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. I believe silence is important for spiritual growth. We've got to take some time where we just find silence to commune with God. This is our pastor has been having his dog days this week. How about a monthly dog day? Day alone with God. Leave your phone elsewhere. What if we were to turn off our TV, turn off our computers, not check the emails every five minutes? And bigger than that, this one hurts. What if we were to turn off our electronic leashes? Our electronic leashes, our, our cell phones, and sorry about that. Um, what if we were to set these things down? What if we were to turn it off and, and listen for that slow, small whisper? I'm not trying to convert Fellowship Baptist Church to an Amish community, but it's so important that, that we understand the screen time can take us away from God time. Turn it off. The third thing is this, leave some room. Leave some room, a.k.a. margin. 
margin or the space that we create between our load and our limits. Again, as we're reconstructing our schedule, as we go into this point of re-entry after a crazy year and a half, it's important that we find margin. It's having breathing room in our lives. Breathing room in our lives. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. Creating some reserves in our lives so we're not constantly running on empty in a NASCAR pace. Because we need it in all of our areas. Physical margin, so we don't wear out. Spiritual margin, so we don't fall into temptation. So we can help others. Emotional margin for our relationships. Financial margin to avoid falling into debt. And time margin in our schedules so that we're not always rushed in a hurry and worn out. Space for peace. Space for the unexpected, what God wants to do, that we'll have space and margin to step into what he has for us. And the poor thing is this, clean it out, clean it out. As we're wrapping up this morning, clean it out. Again, a very practical thing, but toss things out. It's so easy to accumulate stuff, and that can add to the pace, the crazy pace, when we can't find what we're looking for. We know we have it. I found in my garage the other day uh, my 21-year-old son's Little League bat bag. I've got three aluminum bats that are about the size of a toothpick, and I don't know why I have them. And that's just one of so many things in my garage that I'll never use again. Think about your closets. Some of you have your closets divided into seasons, the four seasons. Um, some of you have a history section thinking these are clothes that are going to come back in style. Okay? You have that section of, well, when I get back down to that ideal weight, I'm going to keep these. And our closets, again, just add to the chaotic lifestyle. But yet in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world. And we, can, we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. God desires that we would be content in him. He is enough. So, clean it out. And then finally, number five, recognize when enough is enough. Recognize when enough is enough. Enough social media, enough salary, enough of the commitments, enough toys, enough clothes? Could it be that our lives and our garages are complex and complicated and busy and cluttered because we haven't answered that question of how much is enough? But yet scripture in Proverbs 30 verse eight, it says, remove far from me falsehood and lying, give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with the food that is needful for me. Just what I need, feed me with that. The NIV says, give me only my daily bread. The New Living Translation said, if I have food and clothes, that should be enough. Please, today, can we deeply consider when is enough enough for us? And so today, I go back to the verse that we started with. The verse there in Jeremiah 6.16, and this is the New Living Testament translation version. It says, this is what the Lord says, stop at the crossroads and look around. Ask for the old godly way and walk in it. Travel its path, and you'll find rest for your souls. But then the response of the people in Judah was, no, that's not the road that we want. Church today, my prayer is, that would not be our answer. That, that we would stand at the crossroads and look. We would ask where the old godly way is, and we would walk in it. That would be our response. Not that we want our own road. 
So as we talk about getting out of the rat race, as we talk about um, chasing peace, the peace of God, the rhythms that Jesus sets for us in the Gospels that we read today, to take the time to love others, to slow down, those types of things as we are reconstructing our schedules are so important for us today. And again, I think so practical. And so as we stand at this crossroads today, as, as the band comes up and we move into a time of invitation, um, what I want to ask you this morning is, how are we doing with that? How are we doing with that? Maybe you're already overscheduled. Maybe you're already um, chasing that piece at a NASCAR pace again. Would we lean into God now? And would we understand the picture that he paints for us in the life of Jesus? And so let's think about that as we do business with him this morning.